songs. And Harold looks like he's in quite a bit of pain and, and despair, agony. He's told me this morning that his back is bothering him again. So as we pray this morning, I want to ask you to pray for Harold, uh, that uh, he might find some relief from that. We're going to pray for others that are here this morning but not feeling as well as they might. So as we start our uh, sermon, service this morning, sermon this morning, I want to ask you to bow your head in prayer with me for some of these requests that we mentioned as well as Harold this morning. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we come before you today and we thank you again for the privilege of gathering together. We've not gathered together to make ourselves feel better. We've not gathered together to lift our emotions in a particular way, uh, but we've gathered together to worship you. And as we worship you, Father, those, those uh, things that weigh down on our hearts kind of fade away. They melt into the background because we are reminded how amazing and how awesome you are. And so, Father, as we worship you today, um, we want to thank you for the, the strength that you give to us, the peace that you give to our hearts, and, and, and just the, the joy that we have because we know that we are rightly related to you through our Savior, Jesus Christ, your Son. Father, this morning there's a few people that we want to remember that are not feeling well, and yet they're still here with us. Um, I think of Harold, and I, and I thank you for his willingness to come out, even in the pain that he is suffering, and I can see just from him standing there, kind of stooped over a little bit, that he's, he, he's not feeling well this morning. So I lift him up before you and ask that you would strengthen his body and give him uh, the, the ability to endure. Uh, Father, if it's a doctor's appointment or some other medical uh, practitioner that he needs to see, pray that you'd open up the doors for that um, and allow him to get in to see that doctor and that you just give him, uh, do whatever he needs to have his um, health and strength restored, if that's your will. Pray for Ben, and uh, he's here this morning and serving us still, even though he's not feeling well and the rest of the family is not not even able to be here except for Chloe. We thank you, Father, for them being here, but we ask that you would continue to be at work in their lives and in their situations as they battle um, not feeling well and struggling through the, the colds and, and just the, the yuck of not being able to uh, have a, a good night's sleep, the coughing and the, and the difficulty breathing, all those things that uh, they're fighting right now. I lift them up before you and ask that you would continue to work there. Think of Jim as well this morning. Thank you that he's able to be with us today. Uh, but still, when he goes out, he's uh, still struggling to um, maintain uh, even just a proper balance and um, walk straight. And, and then when he tries to talk, that doesn't always come out the way he thinks it should, and he's intending it for it to come out. And so what I just ask, for, especially that you give his doctors wisdom as they try to figure out what's going on. I know that's his, it's his desire not to have this linger on and on and certainly not be uh, something that impacts him for the rest of his life. So I ask for your will to be done there in his life as well. Thank you again, Father, for the privilege of gathering together <coughs> to worship you. Bless our time together, we pray. And we would ask, Lord, that our hearts would focus on the goodness of our great God, you and our Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. All right, we're going to take a break from our study in the book of Ephesians this morning. Excuse me, and we're going to continue thinking, or we're going to think about um, Christmas and what Christmas is really all about. If you take a look at your note page, um, and yes, that is the right note page for today. Somebody asked me on the way in, are you preaching? They looked at the note page and saw how few blanks and how short it was on the page, and I said, don't let that deceive you. Um, don't, don't be fooled by what is on uh, or the shortness of the note page. We're going to spend some time this morning, um, <coughs> and I'll be surprised if we finish um, before 11.30. So, um, but but we're looking, I'm looking forward to sharing this with you this morning. Uh, the title of the message is The Guiding Gift. All right? And when we think about something that guides us, we think about maybe if we're lost, we need some direction. Um, I don't know if I should tell stories on my wife. Uh, she's usually a very good navigator. Uh, <clears throat> when, I, when, I get, when I get in the car and I don't know where I'm going, I just tell my wife, tell me where to go. What's my next? Where do I go next? What do I do next? And when we lived in South Africa, the first time we went to South Africa, the, guy, the family that we filled in for, they left us their map book. Now, it was a spiral-bound map book, probably about that thick, you know, 
about that big and about that thick. And it was supposed to help us go wherever we wanted to go. And, you know, we'd, she'd never been there, and I didn't drive much the first time I went there, and I didn't pay attention, and it had been a couple of years, so I didn't really know where we were going when we, you know, hey, come over to the person's house. Uh, so we followed them the, from the airport. That was okay, but then we had to get home, okay? Uh, and so Barb gets the map book out, and, and I remember she's sitting on the other side of the car, uh, and we're driving in the other lane. So those are a few things that kind of just you know, have you preoccupied, right? You're not thinking about what you're, you know, how, how am I supposed to read this map when it's kind of the other way around? Um, and we got lost several times, and it seems like every time we got lost, we ended up in this place called Linkerbon. And I'm trying to figure out, where in the world is Linkerbon? And I ask, is this, can you find it on the map? No, it's not on the map. Well, where is this place called Linkerbon? So, uh, we had this family that <coughs> she was a she played hockey, field hockey, not the real kind of hockey, but field hockey. So she invited us to a field hockey match, and we rode with her and her friends. And so we're in the we're in the car, and I see on the sign uh, Linkerbon. And so I kind of nudge my wife, said, "Look, Linkerbon," and she's like, "We're going to Linkerbon. Where is Linkerbon?" And everybody in the car started laughing. <coughs> what are you laughing at? We, we, we always get lost, and we kind of seems like we're always lost in Linkerbon. And as they continued their laughter, they told us Linkerbon means left lane in Afrikaans. <laughs> and now you laugh. So you see, even though we had the map, it didn't necessarily help us figure out where Linkerbon was. Because Linkerbahn wasn't really a place. <coughs> so you need more than just a map to get you where you want to go. This morning we're going to talk about this guiding gift that God has given to us. And, and this guiding gift is so much better than a map. When I was a teenager, my cousin and I, we, we were seriously into the outdoorsy kinds of things. Uh, we fished, we hunted, we trapped, we did all kinds of things in the out of doors, and we really enjoyed it. And by the time we turned 16 and it was time to go hunting and get your hunter safety course, we did those things, but we still had to have an adult to go hunting with. And so uh, he didn't have his fa a father. His father passed away when he was younger. Uh, my mom and dad divorced when I was really young. And so neither one of us had a father who could take us hunting. So we had to find somebody who would take us hunting. And there was a man in our church named Dale. And Dale loved to hunt. He loved to be outdoors. He was a taxidermist. And so we asked him, hey, Dale, can, can we go hunting with you? Will you take us hunting? Sure, I'll take you hunting. love to take you hunting. And so we went out in the woods with Dale. And as we got to the woods, uh, Dale took out this thing from his pocket. And he unfolds it and he opens it up. It kind of looks like, go ahead, Levi, I think there's a picture of it there. Um, it it kind of looks like this. And you know what that is, right? It's a compass. And so this compass, Dale took a reading before we went into the woods. And I said, what is that? And he says, it's a compass. I said, well, how do you use it? And he showed us how to use it. Uh, and, and so <clears throat> we were able to figure out where we were and wherever we went into the woods, we knew where to come back out because of the reading of the compass, the headings that we had looked at before we went into the woods. And so from that moment on, I decided, man, I need to have a compass. So guess what went on my Christmas list? A compass. All right, so I got this compass, and I had Dale review with me and show me how to use the compass And because uh, I didn't want to get lost in the woods. So Christmas comes and I open up my presents and guess what? I got a compass. Woohoo! And I knew, and I, you know what? I kept that compass for the longest time. In fact, it's probably floating around in our house somewhere because I don't, you know, I remember having it, um, and except for when you really want to have it, you don't know where it is, right? But anyway, so I have a picture. I was going to bring it and open it up and show you and all that kind of stuff. Uh, in fact, you know what? I have a compass on my watch and I have a compass on my phone. Did you know that? If you have an Apple phone, an iPhone, uh, you have a compass there. Uh, and it shows you north, south, east, west, wherever you're going. A lot of our cars now have um, a, a compass. In fact, our, our Subaru that we bought has a compass. It's in the, it's in the rear view mirror, and I really don't like it there because it's red. And every time I look up at the rear view mirror, I see this red. I go, oh, it's just the compass. 
It's, it's not flashing red behind me, okay? Um, but I really enjoy having a compass because it helps me know where I'm going. It doesn't, I, I, I don't get lost if I have a compass. I know where I'm going, or at least I know the direction that I'm going. You know, as followers of Jesus Christ, you and I, we also have a compass. In fact, we have a couple of tools that when used together, we don't have to worry about being lost. But these tools, they need to be lined up to be used correctly. You know what? It's actually a lot like a compass. I remember Dale telling me about the compass. He said, you need to pick out um, something that's fixed and, and stationary, and you need to find out what the bearing is or the heading is of that, that item, that, that, that fixed object. Um, and then you can come back to that fixed object based on the heading, based on the reading that you take before you go into the woods. So you pick out this tree or this boulder or whatever it is, and you use that part of the compass that comes up off the base. It's the lid, but the lid has this little wire in it, and the wire is tight and it's always straight. And so you line that wire up with whatever the fixed object is, and then you take that little piece, go ahead back to that picture, will you Levi for me? You take that little piece here, and you line this up, you see this little slot in it, you line it up with the wire, and then this magnifies the whole compass, and you really get to a good picture of where you want to go, where you need to go, so you will never be lost, and you can always get back out of the woods. You see, as a follower of Jesus, our fixed object is Jesus, none other than our Savior, Jesus Christ. We fix our eyes on Him. And then we have the Holy Spirit and the Word of God that makes our spiritual compass complete. The Holy Spirit magnifies the Word of God, and when we follow them together, we cannot be lost. We always know where we are in relationship, in relation to where God wants us to be. Now, when you use a compass, it cuts down on the amount of wandering while you're on your quest. You know, we were going out into the woods to find, well, sometimes it was rabbits, sometimes it was birds, sometimes it was deer. We were going out in the woods to find something that we could shoot and bring home and clean and cook and eat. That's what it was all about for us. Now, there's a couple of adjectives that, that describe our Savior, Jesus Christ, and the quest that we're on. What do you think are the two most common objects or adjectives used to describe our Savior? Anybody, anybody want to throw some adjectives out that you think are the most common two that describe our Savior? You got to say it loud. Perfect. He is perfect. Yep. Holy, that he is indeed. Love, sovereign, <clears throat> they go together, often used together. Faithful and true, you got one of them. Light, humble, blameless, <clears throat> forgiving. For by grace you have been saved through faith. Grace and truth are two things that are very true of our Savior, Jesus Christ. <clears throat> and in our text this morning, those are two things that we're going to see that we're on a quest for. So I'm going to ask you to stand together with me. We're going to read John chapter 1, verses 14 through 18. And as we see the details about this guiding gift, we're going to see that those guiding gifts lead us to grace and truth, which identify our great Savior, Jesus Christ. Would you read together with me John chapter 1, verses 14 through 18. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John, and cried out, saying, This was He of whom I said, he who comes after me is preferred before me, for he was before me. And of this fullness we have all received, and grace for grace. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time, the only begotten Son, 
who is in the bosom of the Father, he has declared him. So let's ask God to bless our time together as we strive to understand a little bit about this grace and truth. Also, we can refer to that as our Savior, Jesus Christ. Our Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning and we thank you for the fact that Jesus is grace and he is truth. There is, there is no other person, no other thing that represents grace and truth quite like our Savior, Jesus Christ. Father, he is the demonstration of your grace. He said himself, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And he is the only way to you, the Father. And so, Father, as we think about that this morning, we ask you to bless our time together in the word. Help us to learn from the pages of scripture this morning and to be encouraged and to be challenged and to be strengthened in our walk with you. We ask these things in our Savior's name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. So, As we try to obtain this idea of grace and truth and incorporate it into our life, we see and we know that these are Christ-like attributes. John repeats them several times in these few verses here. In verse 14, it tells us if we want grace and truth, how do we get it? We get it through Jesus Christ. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. In the first part of John 1, which we didn't read together, um, but we, we, it's a very familiar passage of Scripture, John chapter 1. John first talks about Jesus being in the beginning and the one who was the creator. Jesus is the creator. You understand that, right? In the beginning, it says in, in Genesis 1-1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. We know that God was the creator, but when we get to the book of John and we get to the book of Colossians, the idea of the creator, the individual part of the Godhead that was responsible for creation, it's defined for us. It's Jesus. Jesus is the one who spoke things into existence. He's the creator. So John introduces us in John chapter 1 as as Jesus, as the one who is the creator. He explained how Jesus is the light and how he moves people from the darkness, which all of us are in the darkness when life starts out for us, right? And Jesus is the one, the only one who can move us from the darkness to the light. So that's in John chapter 1. And then by the time we get to verses 14 through 18, it's the last part of John's introduction of Jesus in the gospel. And we read in that, this last part, that Jesus is the living word. This living word focuses on the Christmas message, okay? The fact that Jesus took on flesh and he dwelt among us. He became uh, God in the flesh. He became the God-man, so this morning, we're going to look at this idea of the, the gift that guides. These five verses have been described this way, verses 14 through 18. They are like the mighty finale of a musical composition played by some great symphony orchestra. We hear the rolling of drums and the crashing of cymbals. The entire percussion section of the orchestra comes alive. The fingers of the harpist fly across the strings and the trumpets blast. Wow. It's very exhilarating to think about Christ that way, isn't it? It's a very tangible reminder that Jesus Christ is the be-all and the end-all of a relationship with God the Father. We can't have one without Jesus Christ. Now, as we look at these five verses, we're going to see that there are three facts that jump out of the text and grab our attention First of all, in John chapter 1, verse 14, the very first part of verse 14, and I love the way John writes this. He says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Now, I, 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 you know, I preach from the New King James Version of the Bible. I've become more and more attached to the ESV, the English Standard Version. I really appreciate that version as well. But in this case, I like the way the NIV captures the opening of this verse. The NIV says this, The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. What do you, what do you think about that phrase? He made His dwelling among us. One of the things that we struggled with in South Africa when we first established Grace Baptist Church of Tableview was that we moved from one place to another place to another place to another place. We started off in what they call a creche, a daycare center. 
And that worked well for us, except that every time we went to church on Sunday morning, we had to take all of our stuff, chairs, pulpit, the whole, the sound system, everything. We had it all packed up in a trailer, and we had to go there either on Saturday night or before the service started on Sunday morning and set everything up. We had to take down what was in the crash, and we had to set up everything in our, in our trailer and, and make it into as much as possible place of worship. And we, we were very grateful that the church wasn't the building, but the church is the people. And we were reminded of that constantly as we set up and took down every Sunday. And then we got to the point where this lady in the crash says, I, I, I'm not going to be able to allow you guys to meet here anymore. Go, oh, great. We had a hard enough time finding something to start with. But, she said, I'm renting this other building, which is just across the way there. Um, it's probably actually going to be better for you, um, and, and, and you can use that building. So it was an extension of her daycare. We moved across. It used to be a 7-Eleven store. So we moved across the way to this old 7-Eleven, and it was better. It was a bigger place as we were a growing congregation, and we were able to leave our stuff there so we didn't have to bring it and take it home every time. Uh, we just had to get there in time to set up and then tear down as well. And, and then she got to the point where I don't really need this 7-Eleven building anymore, so I'm going to stop renting it. Um, and so you're going to have to find another place to meet. Okay, So we found another place to meet, and this time it was the town hall. And boy, that was something. Sometimes people would have a party, like a 21st birthday party, on Saturday night. We couldn't go and set up on Saturday night. We never knew what we were going to find on Sunday morning. Sometimes we found the evidence of people having a massive party and stuff that was left there and bodily fluid that was left. It just was not a nice place to be. And we had to clean it up and try to get rid of the stink that was there and all that kind of stuff. Um, and then finally, we were able to build our own building. And you know, we struggled every time when we moved from one place to another. Uh, hey, would you, would, would you like to come to Grace Baptist Church? Well, where's that? Well, we're me- right now we're meeting in the town hall. Oh, you, you don't have your own building? No, we don't have our own building. You don't have your own dwelling place? No, we don't. People didn't really take us seriously because we didn't have a place that we called home that was ours. When we built our building, we had an address, we had a place that people would come, and, and we saw a growth in our, in our congregation because we had a building. People who lived in the area started coming to our church because we had a dwelling place. We had a home. When Jesus came and took on flesh, he made this place his home. <laughs> what, a, what a downgrade, huh? From heaven to a sin-cursed earth. But he took on flesh and he dwelt among us. He made his dwelling place among us. You know what Jesus did? He condescended. He left heaven and he came down to earth. He condescended. This is an awesome condensation, condes- condescension, not condensation, a condescension. This condescension is Jesus coming down to the earth and taking on flesh. That word condescend, it it often has a negative connotation, doesn't it? But really what it means, it means to lower oneself to a level not normally occupied. Jesus lowered himself to a level that he didn't normally occupy. Not physically, not mentally, not socially. He occupied heaven with his Father. He condescended to earth when he took on flesh. This condescension is seen by humility. It's marked by humility. It has the idea of a voluntary thing, that you voluntarily lower yourself down to the level of someone else. And as I said, when we think of condescending, we often think of it as a negative thing. Most of us have probably heard the statement, or maybe even have made the statement, don't be condescending with me, or that was a very condescending thing to say. Um, we don't necessarily appreciate, it's not generally seen as a compliment. And that's because as humans, condescending is not always done kindly. It's often done reluctantly. Oh, I don't want to have to do that. Man, I used to be here, now I'm here. But when Jesus condescended, there was none of that. There was no negativity in it. It was characterized and marked by a mind of humility. 
You and I have um, heard this verse before, and I've mentioned it many times. Philippians chapter 2, verse 8, where the Apostle Paul writes this, And being found in human form, he, Jesus, humbled himself, being found in human form. Having taken on flesh, Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. This shows us that Jesus graciously and willingly condescended. He did something that was regarded as beneath his dignity. And with a mysterious mixture of divine grace and love, Jesus performed the greatest act of condescension of all time. He took on flesh and he dwelt among us. And that taking on flesh, that dwelling among us, was very specific in its nature. It had a very specific purpose. We celebrate Christmas when Jesus was born in a manger, and we celebrate the fact that he lived on this earth, and he demonstrated his divinity, his deity. He was God in the flesh, the God-man. But we sometimes don't remember that Jesus came to earth for the very purpose of dying. David Meese, a uh, long time ago, contemporary Christian music singer, sang a song, every step he took brought him closer to the cross. Jesus knew that. His disciples didn't know that. We know it now because we have the privilege of having the entire uh, copy of the scriptures in our hands, and we've heard it so many times that, that Jesus was born to die. But we need to remind ourselves, as a baby, when the angels were rejoicing over his birth, they didn't really know why, they, why he came to earth either. They, hey, there's Jesus. He's in a manger. He's a baby. They didn't understand that, but they were rejoicing because that's what they were supposed to do. <clears throat> Jesus took on flesh. He condescended so that we might eventually have everlasting life. Not only is this condescension marked by humility, but it's demonstrated by humanity. The wording of this passage is very telling. We mentioned the opening verse of John where John says Jesus is the very expression and the manifestation of God. In verse 3, John talked about the fact that Jesus was the one that expressed God's creative power. John now says that the very creator took on flesh. When God condescended, when Jesus took on flesh, he was squished, if you will, into human flesh. All of divinity, all of God in, the, in Jesus was, was, was compacted into a human body. This word flesh, Jesus took on flesh, it's very explicit. explicit. And I want you to understand that this word is, is a word that people in those days did not think was a flattering word. It was not a word that they would use voluntarily to describe themselves. The Greeks, who saw themselves as the upper crust of humanity, they would certainly balk at the word flesh. You see, flesh to them was corruptible. Flesh was temporary and doomed to be destroyed and cast aside. That's what they thought of when they thought of the word, they heard the word flesh. They didn't like the idea, and certainly in their minds, God would not deal with anything as degrading as human flesh. But, and I appreciated that Ben used that last week in his sermon, but Jesus took on flesh. God took on this degrading piece of humanity. He jumped, in fact, into human flesh. And can I tell you this? That's not just a reference to the skin. But it actually stands for the entirety of a human being. Jesus took on flesh. You see, when Jesus became flesh, he accepted the, all the limitations of humanity. Those things that we battle with. Those things not necessarily sinful, but the, re the result of sin's curse. Things that show our human weaknesses. It's the opposite of how we, how we were created in the image of God. These weaknesses are things like hunger and thirst, being weary and knowing pain. 
Jesus experienced the emotional difficulties that we all experience. Difficulties like disappointment, sorrow, hurt, loneliness, rejection. But remember this. Jesus had no sin nature. And even though he faced all of those physical, emotional, mental limitations, he did not even once hint at giving in to sin. Because Jesus is God. Jesus did not sin. In fact, he could not sin while he was here on earth or any other time ever. He is God. He unfortunately, though, experienced sin in a way so much more overwhelming than even committing sin. Remember how he cried out in Gethsemane in horror? My God, my God, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. How he sweat great drops of blood, as it were. Such agony, such stress weighing down on him. How he pleaded with his father, Abba, Father, if there's some way, some way possible, please take this cup from me. Jesus experienced the weight of sin, even though he never sinned. David Jenkins makes this comment. He says, Jesus was not about to succumb to some temptation to sin. It was worse than that. He was about to drink the cup containing all the sordid sins of mankind compressed together. He became sin for us. John said that Jesus lived for a while among us. Literally, he means he pitched his tent, he cast his lot with us, he moved in with us. He felt, he suffered, he agonized over all of the sins that mankind agonizes over for us as he dwelt among us. We understand perhaps now a little bit more of the awesome condescension of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. He came to earth not for himself, but for us in obedience to God's command and plan for all of eternity. We see in verse 14b the amazing discovery. The amazing discovery. We have, we have seen his glory the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. In this second part of verse 14, there's another word of deep significance in the description of our Lord's incarnation. And that word is glory. Glory. In His taking on flesh, He demonstrates the glory of God. And we might wonder how that actually happens. But first, let's talk about this. Let's talk about the fact that God's glory surpasses human glory. The glory of God is so much greater, so much better than human glory. We, we have to decipher between human glory and God's glory. As a man, when we achieve glory, as a person, as we achieve glory, it may be the result of a great thing. Or at least we think it's a great thing. But whatever greatness we may accomplish, we need to understand this and remember that this, that they all pale in comparison to God's glory. You see, human glory is achieved when a person performs some outstanding deed, some feat that, is, uh, that we recognize him for. We say, wow, what a great thing that was. Perhaps it's in sports or in an act of heroism. We're all humbled when we hear the stories of great military people who gave their lives so that we can enjoy the freedoms that we have in this country. And we think of them as heroes who gave up everything for the sake of someone else. That's, a, that's something that brings them glory, and rightfully so. Perhaps someone performs an incredible benevolent act or gives a significant financial donation to some worthwhile cause. We know of all the, the people in our society today that are known for that. People like, and not just because I'm going to mention their name doesn't mean that I agree with where they stand philosophically or, or religiously or any other way. People like Oprah Winfrey. She does a lot of good things for people. Gives away a lot of things. 
so people can have a better life here on earth. Bill Gates, the Gates Foundation, does a lot of good things. Every year, the Yankees during their season have this thing called Hope Week, as do many other major league teams. And they do something that is, they do lots of things for like children with cancer and, and other people that have great needs. And, and they do something to make it better for them in this earth. And that's, that's to their glory, if you will. But can I remind you that all of those things will fade away when this life comes to an end. But what Jesus did that brought glory to his Father is eternal. It will never, ever fade away. We think about individuals who have made an incredible discovery that changed the course of life for all of us. As we think back through history, there have been some inventions or discoveries that if we think about them, we really can't imagine life without them. For example, all of us, well, except for two families, actually only one family this morning, came to church the same way. How did you get here? You drove. Everybody drove except for Barb and I. We walked. Can you imagine walking to church, Paul? You don't want to walk to church? Pat? Gary? No? Monroe's? Would you walk? Probably wouldn't come that far, would you? But we have this thing called a car. We get in the car and we get here in a matter of minutes. Thankful for the car. It wasn't that long ago that cars were not, and every kind of person had one. When we were growing up, we didn't have a car. Everywhere we went, we walked, we rode our bike. Or we had to call somebody and say, hey, can you give us a ride? Every, Sunday, every Saturday, we called somebody and said, hey, we'd like to go to church. Can you give us a ride? And they gave us a ride. They, they went out of their way, stopped at our house, picked us up, and took us to church. We didn't have a car. Eventually, our neighbors who went to church with us, um, we invited them one time, and they were part of the, can you give us a ride, because they didn't have a car group. Eventually, she got a car. Mrs. Wallenhurst got a car. I look back, I wonder if it was safe driving with her. But anyway, um, she got a car. Big old green Ford LTD station wagon. We didn't have to call and ask for a ride to church anymore. Every Sunday morning we piled into that car and Mrs. Wallers drove us down the highway to our church. Wow, what a blessing it was. didn't have to ask anymore for a ride to get to church. We love cars today. We're thankful for cars today. I'm getting ready to, to take my road test and drive a big old bus. December 20th, if you want to pray about that for me. Take the road test. Who in the world, I mean like a hundred years ago, who in the world would have ever thought of a vehicle like a bus that would take kids to a school? 30 people on a, one vehicle going to this big massive building. And we call it a school bus. Nobody would have thought of that. But today we have these things called cars and vehicles that we drive and we benefit from them. So many other things. We think of who's the guy who invented the automobile? Henry Ford. Not really, but he gets the credit for it. There was somebody who had one before him, but nobody ever knows. And I can't tell you who his name is right now. But they tell us in Elkhart, Indiana, that's when the first, where the first car was made. Okay. Yep, always have horses. But still, I mean, when it's 30 degrees below zero, I don't feel like getting on a horse and riding five miles someplace, or even one mile. But yes, we always have horses. Some people would say, we should go back to horses. I don't know, they're not heated, so the, the, the buggy is still pretty cold on a, on a snowy, wet morning. Who wants to drive that to get to church? But that's what they used to do. Can you think of life without cars? No, we really can't. How about airplanes? We just made a trip to Colorado. Some people asked us, did you drive? No. We could, but we wouldn't have any time to spend vacation with Micah if we drove because you got two days to get there, two days to get back. That's, that's four days cut off of your vacation. That means you get like a day and a half to spend with somebody. If you, you know, we got on an airplane, and within six hours, because we, we took two different flights, within six hours we were there, and we had... Five days to enjoy with Micah. And we really did enjoy that time. 
I wouldn't have wanted to make the drive. Here's this. When we used to go to South Africa as missionaries, you know, before, again, it wasn't that long ago, you know how missionaries used to get to Africa? On a boat. 10 to 12 days to get there. Sometimes they never got there. They died in the process. Aren't you glad? I was glad that I never had to spend 10 days on a boat to get to South Africa. I got on an airplane, and the fastest airplanes that we could get uh, or the fastest trip we ever took was like 23 hours. That's not bad compared to 10 or 12 days. I'm thankful for airplanes that take us someplace and get us back quickly and relatively safely. There's a degree of glory that is attached to these people and others who have accomplished such amazing human feats. But as I said, the problem is that man, when man does something worthy of glory, he often becomes puffed up. He often thinks, man, look what I did. Look how great I am. Thinks of himself more highly than he ought to. And then whatever he or she does, it will fade away. Whatever the accomplishment is, it doesn't compare to the glory of God. When time comes to an end, so will that memory. When life on this earth ceases, and we know that it will, the great accomplishments of men and women will pass away. They will have absolutely no impact on eternity. But God's glory is for eternity. And we see the superiority of God's glory. So first of all, your blank there is God's glory surpasses human glory. And then the second blank is the superiority of God's glory. You see how this is worded in the text. The Apostle John puts it this way. He says, we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father. You see, we get the idea that this glory is something different. It's something greater. In fact, it's actually something divine. Let's, talk, let's take a quick look through his story, not just history, but his story, and check out the times the glory of God is mentioned. Don't worry, we won't try to cover them all because we would be here much later than we normally or, or maybe some of you want to be. But here's three things that remind us of the glory of God. The first time we see the glory of God is when he declares in Genesis chapter 1, let there be light. Say, Pastor, how's that the glory of God? Well, let me remind you that when, when God said, let there be light in verse 3, there was no sun, there was no moon, and there were no stars. So what was the glory? What was the light? It was the glory of God. It was God demonstrating who he was. Again, Jenkins makes a, he asks a valid question here, and then he kind of surmises a little bit. He says, when light, what light was it? It was not the physical light of the sun, for the sun and the stars had not yet been created. It was the glory of God in all of his heavenly brightness. God's glory filled the earth with indescribable beauty. Let there be the glory of God on display. The glory of God appeared next in the mysterious cloud that hovered over the Israelites from the crossing of the Red Sea until they entered the promised land 40 years later. During that time, there were a couple of other distinct demonstrations of God's glory in their wandering. One of those times was on Mount Sinai when God came down to meet the Israelites. Remember that? We read this, on the morning of the third day there were thunders and lightnings and thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. This is the glory of God. Now the mount there stand, now sorry, then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because of the Lord had descended upon it. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. Man, the people were, were experiencing the glory of God on that day. And what was it? It was just about overwhelming for them. 
In fact, later on we read after God gave Moses the second set of tablets um, and Moses saw God when God hid him in the cleft of the rock, we read this, And the Lord said to Moses, This very thing that you have spoken I will do, for for you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Moses said, Please show me your glory. And God said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face for man shall not see me and live. In other words, you cannot see me in all of my glory. It's too great for you. And the Lord said, behold, there's a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in the cleft of the rock and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Because the glory of God would have consumed him. It was too great. In chapter 34, at the end of this um, encounter with God, when Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand as he came down from the mountain, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. The glory of God had made a lasting impression, had made an impression on Moses. And when he got down to the people and he walked around them uh, in the midst of them, they said, Man, you can't do this. You got to cover your face. You see, the face of Moses had been impacted by the glory of God. And the Shekinah glory had left an impression. And everywhere he went, people said, man, we can't look at you. That's the glory of God. When you and I are impacted by the glory of God, it makes a change. makes a difference. It has an impact on our lives. Moses was impacted by that glory of God. The glory of God has made a difference for you and I. Through Jesus Christ. One more reference from the Old Testament this morning. Psalm 19 says, The heavens declare the what? The glory of God. And the sky above proclaims his handiwork. And if you were to read the rest of that psalm, and you can do that this afternoon, the rest of that psalm records how magnificently the heavens so awesomely show the glory of our great God. But let's go back to our text this morning. You see what it says there in our text? We have seen his glory. That's a gift of God. And at Christmas, we like to talk about gifts. John writes of the glory of God as it was manifested in our Savior, Jesus Christ, God's greatest gift. It was, his de- it was demonstrated every time He performed a miracle. Whenever Jesus did something miraculous, life-changing, the glory of God was on display. When Jesus taught, every time he opened his mouth and he taught people, you know what was coming out of his mouth? What was on display? The glory of God. His listeners caused Matthew to make this observation or write this in Matthew chapter 7, verse 28. And when Jesus finished teaching these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. God was on display, and the glory of God was evident in the teachings of Jesus. John says that Jesus convicted the people of their sins and showed them God's desire to forgive them and to make them his children. Jesus' own revelation talked about his glory. It was revealed when he was transfigured with Moses and Elijah before Peter, James, and John. You remember that up on the Mount of Transfiguration, right? It was such an awesome sight up there. Peter says, let's build some temples for everybody up here. You only need to build one, right? That was for God, Jesus in the flesh. We might stop and say, Pastor, what about today? How is his glory seen today? Well, God's glory is not just seen in one person today. God's glory is not just seen in one place today. But it's seen in the person and the work of the Holy Spirit as he indwells you and I. And here's an amazing truth. The glory of God indwells you and it indwells me and it indwells every believer who has put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Here's the amazing truth. You and I 
are the displayers of the glory of God to those who don't know Him. When we go to work on Monday morning, when we go to school on Monday morning, when we play uh, for the sectional championship because God has given us the ability and the talent, or when we play for the league championship in soccer, we are displaying the very glory of God because God has poured that into us. We are His representation in this world in which He has placed us. The everyday things that we do at home that we think nobody sees actually display the glory of God in and through us. Don't forget that God has called us to that very thing, that very purpose. Yes, he's called us to be salt and light, but you know what? As we are that salt and light, as we are his representation in the world, every time we communicate the gospel, every time we live out a godly attribute in our lives, every time we serve our neighbor or our co-worker, we are doing these things for the glory of God. So when we stop asking what would Jesus do and start doing what Jesus would do, the glory of God is on display in the child of God. That's pretty amazing, this condescension of our great God and our Savior Jesus Christ has resulted in this amazing revelation, this amazing discovery. And then we're going to wrap it up this morning with this astonishing revelation. We're jumping down to verse 18 where John writes this, no one has ever seen God, the only son, the one who is at the father's side, he has revealed him. The end of verse 18 speaks about this astonishing revelation that we want to see here in verse 18. It's not just that Jesus tabernacled among us. It's not just that he took on flesh. Where, where we read in John chapter 1, the word became flesh. Then it says, we beheld his glory. The glory as of the only begotten, full of grace and truth. Yes, Jesus was revealed and Jesus revealed his glory. But this word, excuse me, or this phrase has revealed, it's the Greek word exegestato. Okay, you say, well, what in the world is that? Well, we, we get our English word exegete from it. Okay, um, pre- preachers engage in the, uh, the science or the act, if you will, of exegesis. Dictionary.com defines exegesis this way. Listen to this. It's the critical explanation or interpretation of a text or portion of a text, especially of the Bible. So let me boil it down for you. Jesus is the explanation or the interpretation of God the Father to mankind. I'm sure you would agree that that is the best revelation ever. If Jesus didn't come to earth and take on flesh and exegete the Father to us, we wouldn't know the Father. But because he did, we have this incredible, astonishing revelation. Let's talk about it just for for a few minutes here. It's an unprecedented revelation. John says, no one has ever seen God. Now, some might say, well, that's a problem, Pastor, because as I read the Bible, I see that Moses saw God. We talked a little bit about that. But remember what God did? He put him in the cleft of the rock, and then he put his hand over him, and then his backside passed before him. So did he really see God? Mm, Only through several filters. Remember that Moses had a great desire. That was his burning desire. God, I want to see you. I want to see you face to face. And God said, you can't. Not possible. This desire that Moses had wasn't just a curiosity, but it was a deep desire to know what God wanted for his people Israel. He desperately wanted to know God's plan and even to have his wisdom. Man, to know God's plan and know God's wisdom would have helped him in amazing ways in his serving God by leading his stiff-necked and rebellious people. 1 Timothy chapter 6, 
reinforces the truth that no one has ever seen God. Paul told young Timothy this. He said, He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen nor can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion forever. Amen. Wow. We can't see him because we can't stand it. It would consume us. So when we realize the magnitude of what Jesus has done, what is the magnitude? Jesus has shown us the Father. You know what that is? That's awesome. That Jesus, God would send His Son to take on flesh so that we could see the Father. I like the way the Bible Knowledge Commentary explains it. It says, the fact that Jesus is the exegete of the Father. The Son is the exegete of the Father, and as a result of His work, the nature of the invisible Father is displayed in the Son. We get to see the Father through the Son. And I want you also to understand this. Not only is it such an amazing revelation, not only is it unprecedented letter A there for you, but we also see letter B, that it is an unabridged revelation. First John wants us to be sure who the one is that provides this revelation. He says that it is the Son, the only Son, who is at the Father's side. This wording must be a favorite of the Apostle John. We see him use it several times. Uh, We might be more familiar with it this way, the only begotten Son. Or the only begotten of the Father. He uses it in John 1.14, John 1.18, John 3.16, you know that one. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. John 3.18, 1 John 4.9. Being the only Son of the Father, he knows the Father like no one else knows the Father. No one knows the Father like the Son because they dwelled together in eternity past. There's such an intimacy between the Father and the Son. And the Son can declare the Father to us like no one else can. But he could only do it because he took on flesh. When John says Jesus is the only begotten, he's saying he is the one and only, he is the unique God. The Bible Knowledge Commentary explains the fact that Jesus is the exegete of the Father this way. We already said it, but let me read it for you again. The Son is the exegete of the Father, and as a result of the Son's work, the nature of the invisible Father, God the Father, is displayed in His Son. You know what? Here's the good news. You and I can see God in a way that no one else has ever seen God. God is no longer far away. God is no longer some mysterious being. Even though he's the only awesome one, he is not unapproachable in his glory and his majesty. Why? Because Jesus has communicated the love and the tenderness of our God. He has made known his compassion for all of mankind. And perhaps you're here this morning, or maybe you're listening online, and you're not aware of the revelation of God that has been given to man through Jesus Christ. Well, can I tell you something? Now you are. God loves you. God sent his son to die in your place. God gave the best gift ever that can guide us and direct us through this life into an eternity with him. This guiding gift that we have been talking about, the son of God. This revelation like no other revelation. Back to my illustration of the compass. Those lost in the woods would give almost anything for a compass to guide them back to civilization. The Father has given us His Son, who is, if you will, the compass of life. The one who alone can direct us to our heavenly home. And you know what? This heavenly home that we're talking about is not just a temporary shelter, but it's an eternal home where nothing and no one can harm us or take us from His presence. You see, because of this guiding gift that we have, this guiding light, we can know God when we follow His Son. We can know God. We can experience the wonder that Mary and Joseph experienced when the angel told them that they were going to be the parents 
of this Son of God. When they told Mary and Joseph that he would be the Word, the one who would take on flesh, the one who would tabernacle among us, if we follow his lead, he can be that to us. Not just while we're here on earth, but you know what? We get to follow him right on into eternity. The light who leads us from the darkness into the very presence of the Father. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning. Again, we thank you so much for our guiding gift, the great compass, our Savior Jesus Christ. Father, thank you for allowing him to declare to us you to help us to understand your glory and to instill in us your glory so that when we live as we ought to as your children, your glory is on display in and through us. Father, help us not to forget that. Help us to allow you to reflect yourself through us, especially in this Christmas season. Help us to be bold to invite others to do things together in our church, to take advantage of the opportunity to talk about our Savior, Jesus Christ, that the Christmas season affords us. Father, help us to be intentional about speaking of the love of God demonstrated in the gift of His Son, Jesus Christ, who came as a babe wrapped in a manger so that He could go to the cross and die in our place. Thank you, Father, for that amazing gift. In His name, the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.